Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about some new uh, updates on the housing bills that have been going through the legislature this session. Uh, a new stadium proposal down in Long Beach, an update on the campfire investigation, some uh, bed bugs cropping up in LA jails, and an update on the illegal fences that have been cropping up in Koreatown and uh, the planters around the rest of Los Angeles. How's it going, Bushido? Going all right. So I wanted to kind of start today off on a little bit of a somber note because a friend of a friend of ours, somebody who is a really amazing organizer with uh, About Face, which is a, a Veterans for Peace group, has apparently uh, passed away very unexpectedly, most likely from suicide. I, I wanted to just reach out to folks and remind people and kind of gently let you know if you're in crisis or if you know someone who's in crisis, there is help out there. Coming from a high school that experienced a suicide cluster, this stuff really affects communities and really hurts the people around you. And if you're struggling and if you're hurt, you can always call 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. Or if you don't feel like talking on the phone, the crisis text line is always available. You can simply text HOME to 741-741 and there's somebody readily available. Remember, the people around you and your community love you and we're here to help you. And no matter how dark things seem, someone will offer you a helping hand. Um, so I hope you all are able to reach out to folks in your lives that might need someone to check in with them to make sure that they're doing okay. Um, we need to protect each other. That's the only way we win. So um, with that kind of somber note at the top, let's go ahead and hop into the news. Yeah. Uh, so, well, thank you very much for that. That's uh, incredibly important to remember that uh, everyone, your, your mental health is is paramount in all of this. And we, we do need to be there to support each other because this is hard and difficult work and the world can be a very cruel place. And it is through our camaraderie that we're able to, uh, to come together and actually make these changes and build the world that we want to see. Um, so I actually want to start off uh, with a quick apology uh, to the folks over in Hancock Park. Um, I wanted to apologize profusely to our listeners for a mistake that I made in the episode of the podcast that we released back uh, the first week of May. I mistakenly identified Hancock Park as one of the only neighborhoods in Los Angeles to vote for Trump back in the 2016 election. Uh, I was relaying what I had been told by a resident of the neighborhood without having verified the information for myself, and I should have known better. Uh, for what it's worth, that, that prestigious honor in L.A. County history uh, belongs jointly to a precinct up in the northwest corner of Beverly Hills, uh, actually right next to where that, um, I think it actually might have contained that uh, home with the thousands of guns. Huh. Um, and uh, a few, yeah, exactly. And a few precincts down in, in uh, Rolling Hills and a couple of other precincts around Palos Verdes. And finally, one other precinct up in Glendale, or between Glendale and La Cunada. Mm. Uh, we'll do our best to avoid making these mistakes in moving forward. And uh, thank you to our listener who brought this mistake to our attention. We, attention rather. Yeah, uh, no, we do uh, genuinely appreciate being called out for that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, thank you very much to our listener, Rachel, for uh, pointing that out and asking us to double check our numbers. Uh, let's talk about somebody else that's double checking their numbers because SB50 ah. uh, is not going to be moving as quickly as Mr. Scott Wiener hoped it would. So what happened in the state legislature today? Yeah, so uh, this statewide upzoning attempt came to a crashing halt 
uh, in the Senate's Appropriation Committee, where Senator Portentino uh, changed the bill into a two-year piece of legislation, which basically uh, kicks the can down the road on this controversial piece of legislation until next January, where it'll be picked up again for consideration in the 2020 legislative cycle. And this is pretty normal for uh, this is pretty normal for bills. They're either one-year bills or two-year bills uh, because obviously you only had your seat for two years. So this kind of extended the timeline, but it's not all that out of the ordinary for big and controversial bills to give them a little bit more time to amend and discuss and figure out, you know, what the safer vote is for keeping their seat. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, this is the, the senators don't have their seats for two years. They've got them for longer, but uh, your point is well made. Uh, so anyway, this decision uh, earned the chagrin of many of the folks who have been anxiously watching the bill's progress, not least amongst them, uh, Gav- uh, the, I keep saying it, Governor Newsom, uh, <laughs> Governor Gavin Newsom, who released a statement expressing his disappointment in the delayed action on the bill. Uh, Scott Weiner also released a statement on the delay saying, quote, while I'm deeply disappointed that the chair of the Appropriations Committee has decided to postpone SB 50 until 2020, we are 100% committed to moving the legislation forward. California faces a 3.5 million home shortfall equal to the combined housing shortage of the 49 other states, and the status quo isn't working. Uh, so this decision from Senator Pornentino comes in the wake of the release of a new study that actually contradicts the basic principles underlying Senator Weiner's upzoning bill. Um, there's some really good reporting uh, coming out of 48 Hills, a, a, a publication that uh, uh, comes out of San Francisco. Uh, and they, according to them, the study suggests that contrary to the dominant narrative behind SB 50, the relaxation of zoning laws will have the exact opposite effect of dropping housing costs. Quote, existing vulnerable communities will be displaced to further suburbs while housing prices will remain high in the city. Um, So basically the study has found that, uh, to to actually quote directly from the study itself, uh, housing markets are not like standard markets, so that aggregate increases in supply do not translate in any straightforward way to decreases in price, because the internal plumbing of housing markets, succession, migration, and occupation patterns are full of frictions, sunk cost barriers, and externalities that make the effects of aggregate supply increases highly uh, aggregate supply increases highly uneven and in many cases involve unintended or contradictory effects. These findings really are echoing all of the criticisms uh, or most of the criticisms that have been leveled against uh, SB 50 by virtually every tenant organizing group uh, over the last few months. And it stands uh, in, in very stark contrast to the position of the vocal and relatively tiny uh, California YIMBY group that it seems, or movement rather, that seems to be focused primarily in San Francisco. Well, and one of the things that we don't, well, you and I talk about it a lot because neither one of us are fans of yeah. Prop 13 as it currently stands. But one of the things that Prop 13 <laughs> caused to happen is when, when uh, local governments and county governments can't rely mm-hmm. on property taxes to pay their bills, they instead change towards things like development fees. And those kind of assessments drive yes. up the cost of each new development. So one of the reasons that SB 50, in my view, is kind of doomed to fail without some sort of massive repeal or reform of Prop 13 is every new unit we're going to build or want to build is going to be like 30 to 50% higher just because of the added taxes and fees and developments. And, and the fact that it's a privately owned development means that somebody out there wants to get their return on investment. And as long as people are, are stuck in this growth model and the people who are responsible for building housing and maintaining housing and then being landlords over housing are tied to uh, profit motives, we're not going to see any flexibility. Like this, the, the floor does not drop that far when there's just regular no. recessions or you know regular economic softness. And especially not when you're in a state like California where 
even though a lot of people are moving out of the state, uh, more people are moving into the state year over year to make up for that. We're still seeing population growth. So all of the buildings that we're building are going to have to be necessarily more expensive. You're going to have to pay higher rents. And for a lot of these development companies, that's kind of their model. Like when you look at downtown, you see these, these you know, the high-rise condos there. One of the things I learned from some friends of mine that live there is what happens is the first year you move in, rent is kind of reasonable. And then over the next couple of oh, years yeah. of your lease, they just keep upping the price to astronomical levels because they don't really care about keeping you in the building. You being in the building and paying rent is just them building an investment portfolio so they can go to a lot of foreign capital in these cases and say, hey, we're renting this like one bedroom place for 3500 a month. You can totally make money if you buy this condo and turn it into a rental property. You know, the, the renters in a sense are kind of a loss leader here because they're not attempting to build stable housing for anyone. They're not looking down the road. They're focused on short-term growth and eventually they're going to flip it to another management company that's going to go through that exact same cycle. You know, the, the law of diminishing returns is pretty hard and fast in the market. The longer you own something, the less money you're making on it overall. So you don't, these development and investment companies don't want to be holding on to these buildings for 20, 50 years. They only want to hold them for maybe five or 10 years, cash out and get out of the market. So until we really reevaluate and fix the way that we deal with housing and, and, you know, you and I both seem like we're big fans of public housing or some sort of, you know, public-private nonprofit model, this is going to keep continuing to happen. So anything that feeds that beast, anything that makes it easier to build these expensive developments, these privately owned developments, is not going to fix the housing crisis, um, especially when we don't yeah. have rent control, when we don't have uh, protections against oh, yeah. just cause evictions, when we don't have a tenant's right to organize. Uh, and, you know, strange that I mentioned these <laughs> because the, the uh, state assembly yeah, right? and the state senate just happen to be talking about doing those very things. So let's get into SB 529. AB 1481 and AB 1482. And for those of you at home, I hope you're taking notes because we're just going to keep throwing numbers at you. <laughs> well, actually, we can be pretty quick on these because uh, what's important about them is that they do all of those things that you just explained. Uh, so the SB 529, uh, which is the uh, a, a bill to protect the tenants' rights to organize so that the landlords can't kick them out. So it's just like if you were trying to form a union at your workplace. Uh, 529 prevents landlords from being able to evict you based upon the fact that you're trying to create a tenant's uh, association. Uh, that bill has made it through the Senate Appropriations Committee on a 4-2 vote. And that means it's going to go to the floor. And that is fantastic news for housing activists across the state. Um, nice. AB 1481 and 1482 have also made it through the Appropriations Committee over in the Assembly. So they're going to go to the floor of the Assembly for a vote as well. Uh, and again, these are all related to tenant protection. So it's uh, anti-rent uh, gouging. And um, I, what was the, the third one again? <laughs> oh, the, uh, the right to counsel. There's so many of them. Yeah, right uh, to 14, counsel, that's 1482 right. so, caps rent basically at 5% plus uh, cost of living adjustments. So right. basically, CPI, yep. yeah, CPI, uh, what we would call inflation, the consumer price index. So to keep that in mind, right. that could still mean that you would be seeing an 8% rent increase year over year. Uh, LA's RSO locks you in at about 3 3.5%. And if you just Correct. do the, the rule of 72, which if you're, if you're kind of looking at like compound interest and trying to figure out how soon something will double at a certain interest rate, you just divide the number 72 mm -hmm. by the interest rate. So you figure 8% a year, 72 divided by 8 means that you're going to double the price of that building in about a decade, which is still an incredible amount of growth. Like 
it, your wages it really probably is. don't double every 10 years. In fact, they probably stay about the same-ish. Maybe you're seeing a 1% to 2% increase over that decade. So it still doesn't, you know, it still doesn't read to me how the average working family or Per, you know, if you are you're a single person trying to afford an, an apartment in LA, which I know is ridiculously expensive, as like a permanent bachelor, uh, that kind of rent increase really begins to eat into your income and your disposable income. We're already living in a city where 60% of the city is paying more than 30% of their take-home pay mm-hmm. in rent. Um, 50% of our city, or about 40 to 50% of our city, is severely rent burdened, where they're paying more than 50%. Yes. And that becomes a real problem yeah. because as you're looking down the road towards retirement, uh, the cost of healthcare getting more expensive, it's not really clear to me where the landlords think all this extra cash is going to be coming from because we're not seeing <laughs> wages keep pace. If anything, we're seeing, you know, compared to inflation, wages go down over time. Like you're making less money now at your current pay level than you were in 1978. And that's a problem. I really, you know, it's one of these things where we have an overheating economy on a national level. And especially in LA, and especially in California overall, uh, that engine is going to run out of oil at some point. It's just going to burn itself down. And we just went through that about a decade ago. Uh, and you keep seeing headlines about, oh, real estate prices have finally recovered back to those levels. And I see that more as a warning sign than like a sign of celebration. Yeah, but I mean, this is there is uh, a, a silver lining to this because if you look at the way that housing is priced right now in neighborhoods in like South Los Angeles, they've been seeing rent spikes of like 30, 40, 50% in a lot of cases in the areas, especially down in Inglewood. Uh, and those kinds of protections, like if you, the, the, the protections that'll be afforded through this, this set of housing bills that are coming out are going to be hugely important because right now, if you are renting a single family home in Los Angeles, which there are a large number of folks who are renting those homes, especially down in South Los Angeles, um, you do not actually have any protections under the Los Angeles rent stabilization ordinance because Costa Hawkins prohibits uh, rent control from being applicable to single family homes. So this CPI plus, uh, what was it? Three, 5%, five percent. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 5%. Yeah. So that, that CPI plus 5% consumer price index plus 5% is a, uh, a much more palatable amount of rent increase, even though it is, like you said, potentially doubling every decade, it still is at least some level of security that your rent isn't going to just jump up by 50% like next year because your landlord just decided arbitrarily that, hey, because they're building a new stadium here, uh, we can charge all this extra rent. And because they're building a new uh, Crenshaw subway line in the neighborhood, then you can increase the rent as much as you want because somebody will come in in a gentrifying mood and uh, buy that property up or rent that property out. And the landlord is going to make a ton of money off of it. Yeah. So, well, it's, um, it, it's also something we've seen at the Hillside Villas and we've seen at the Burlington Unidos where yes. uh, tenant organizers have been able to fight some of these rent increases. But even then, their win is going to the negotiating table with the landlord. And it's really a question of like, do we expect people to have to fight that hard every time the landlord wants to buy a new boat? And so like these are well-deserved protections the tenant should have already had. But as long as we're fighting the forces of capital Absolutely. and growth, that's really only getting us, you know, defensive wins. That's not an offensive win. Uh, but it, speaking of this, because you mentioned new stadiums, uh, it looks like we're going to make yeah. the Angels name even longer because they want to move <laughs> to Long Beach, I guess. 
Yeah, so I believe that technically their name right now is the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, which is bizarre. Um, but yeah, the city of Long Beach is considering building a $1.1 billion waterfront stadium in an attempt to lure the Los Angeles Angels away from their not namesake home of in Anaheim right now. Uh, the Angels are apparently going to be deciding between Anaheim and Long Beach before the end of 2019. And they always um, make it a fight between cities because they know that making yeah. it competitive and making the cities play this like lottery means that they're going to get the best deal. And we've seen this play out time and again where like tax revenues brought in oh, by yeah. stadiums don't fill the gap for what cities pay for no, this they stuff. Do not at all. Uh, also, <laughs> unlike Inglewood, they're not even hiding the fact that the city's going to pay for it all. Like this one's kind of very upfront with the whole like. Uh, either Anaheim or Long Beach is going to front a billion dollars for a stadium. Uh, at least in Inglewood, they lied and were like, you're not going to pay a dollar for it. And then, you know, we find out we're paying a lot for it. Yeah. So right now the plans are looking like it's going to be requiring a hefty amount of public financing, potentially all of it, uh, which is probably going to be quite a challenge for them to secure down in Long Beach because that city actually has the second highest sales tax rate in the entire state of California at 10.25%. Um, and so it's also worth pointing out that even if the Angels do decide to move to Long Beach, that ballpark wouldn't be ready to, for them to play in until the 2025 season. So this is like long-term plans. And whenever, they, whenever professional sports teams are talking about building new stadiums, uh, you should just be very concerned because it is not going to be good for the local taxpayers because you're going to end up being on the hook for something and you're not going to really get anything in return. Yeah, and the city of Long Beach has already gone through a lot of gentrification and a lot of changes recently with prices there skyrocketing. When I was down at Bluff Park a couple of weeks ago, uh, I didn't mm -hmm. realize how many flipper fences there were in that neighborhood now, uh, how many high-rise condos <laughs> there were around there. But Long Beach is really on the up and up. Uh, at the same time, there's not that many more places to build. Like You can only go as far west as the ocean. So it's not like they're going to develop new land. They're simply going to make the already expensive land more expensive uh and so this one like it, you know as much as i loved growing up with baseball as a kid i'm just not sure that's a good use of a billion dollars uh, yes. another terrible no. use of billions of dollars uh looks like uh our investments in pg and e uh this one yeah. I, i'm making a joke but this one's pretty dark it turns out it's so bleak yeah so uh basically california regulators with uh cal fire have determined that PG&E is at fault for the campfire, uh, which killed 85 people. Um, this is just a quick reminder that most of those 85 people that were killed by the campfire were senior citizens, uh, and a lot of them died in their beds without even having the ability to get out of the fire. They were burned alive, uh, or they were burned alive as they were struggling with mobility issues to get out of their homes and make it to shelter. They did not have any chance and this is uh, truly, truly a, a disaster for California that we are still coming to terms with. And unfortunately, it is potentially a harbinger of things to come as oh, yeah. we are looking at a, a, an increasingly uh, devastating fire season year on year here in California with increasing droughts and increasing rain cycles in the winter. Uh, and droughts in the summer, which then creates these crazy fires that are going to just be potentially hugely devastating for all of us and cause uh, so many problems for us moving forward. It's, it's really just super bleak. But this also potentially means that PG&E uh, is really going to be having a hard time dealing with um, bankruptcy 
And uh, it seems like we might be having some interesting conversations moving forward about the possibility of municipalizing this utility and bringing it under local control. So that's a silver lining in all of this, but man, it is, uh, it's bleak when the profit motive gets uh, in the way of providing safety uh, uh, for the folks that live in California because they just simply did not maintain uh, the shrubs and uh, foliage around these power transmission lines in a safe manner, and they didn't maintain the uh, transmissions line them, lines themselves uh, to prevent this from happening. So, well, and it, it's also it's the, the the intelligencer had a, a really good article talking about California's fire season because we're right back in it. We only have two months that like aren't fire season in California now, and the fires that we have aren't just more destructive. Uh, because they're burning more stuff, they burn hotter. Like fires used to burn at around 1,200 degrees, and now they're burning around 2,100 degrees. They create more drastic wow. winds. So Cal Fire used to plan when a major fire happened for seven days worth of fire-driven winds. Now they plan and staff for 14 days. And that's the thing with the campfire and the oh Woolsey fire is part of what happened is these fires moved so quickly there was no way to position resources quickly enough or give people the evacuation. A lot of people who survived this yeah. survived it because they made split-second decisions to say like, I'm not going to grab my stuff and run. I'm not going to take those extra five minutes to save the family photos. I'm just going to exactly get in the car, drive away. And at the the Road to a Green New Deal, we had this amazing video from Paradise. And one of the things they pointed out was, you know, about 15% of that city is still standing as far as homes go. Those homes have no water and no electricity, but the insurance companies aren't letting the people who live there move out, even though they don't have the basics for habitability. Like we have people in paradise who are stuck in homes that they can't get out of or it's their only place to live because the insurance company is like, well, we're not paying you. Your house is still standing. You can still like have a roof over your head. It doesn't matter that you don't have electricity. It doesn't matter that the the office park where you worked burned down. It doesn't matter that your your kid's school burned down. And about 85% of that, that city is still without permanent housing. There's a lot of people living in tents around there, uh, people living in trailers a couple of towns over. The towns that are around Paradise weren't big, robust towns either. They can't absorb 90,000 people without new infrastructure. They don't have enough fires, or, sorry, they don't have enough firemen, they don't have enough hospitals, they don't have enough you know, basic services to take these people in, let alone the load on the municipal infrastructure like water and energy usage. So this is really a nightmare we're gonna keep seeing. Like we talk about climate refugees, coming from the global south, uh, talk about that in terms of what we're seeing on the border. But really, we have a lot of internal climate refugees. We're going to be seeing more, and we're not building any infrastructure or any way to absorb them. And honestly, I don't think that we can. Like, this is just going to be a crisis for a decade that we don't get ahead of. Uh, And the state really isn't trying at this point to get ahead of it. I think, A, there aren't good options for the state, and B, we don't no. really have the money at the state level to do anything about this. So over the next five or 10 years, as they rebuild paradise, the hope is that like it doesn't burn down again or that the other towns around it don't get caught in a massive wildfire. You know, We're not going to even touch on Woolsey because I want to move on to, to the other issues. But you know, just keep in mind, every year we see fires, we're going to see towns that are basically made homeless and we don't have any place for those people to go and this is what we're talking about when we say we need to build solidarity through the climate crisis because it's a crisis yeah and this isn't just climate change this is a catastrophe and we made it and we got 10 years so i'm not going to beat that drum anymore 
Um, but let's go ahead and talk about what happened out at the, uh, the jail facility in West Los Angeles for the Pacific Division, which is uh, the jail on uh, uh, Venice Boulevard, sort of over by where the Ralphs and stuff is by La Brea. Uh, it actually doesn't look like a jail. It looks kind of like a, a nice office complex, but there's always like LAPD coming in and out of it. Uh, but they just had to close it down for a couple of weeks. Yes, uh, actually just for uh, the second half of this week, fortunately, but uh, they had to close it down because of a bed bug infestation, which is uh, disgusting and also slightly terrifying. So basically, they uh, LAPD came out on Wednesday announcing the fact that the jail was going to be closed down at least through Friday evening, um, and they transferred all of the inmates who were being detained at the Pacific Division Jail uh, over to the Hollywood Division Jail or down to the Metropolitan Detention Center. Uh, while the exterminators are dealing with the bed bugs. So uh, I didn't see if there was an update last night on this about whether or not they had found everything uh, or if they, they found that there were still bed bugs, but they were going to be doing a vacuuming of the jail uh, today to remove all of the uh, dead little buggers and uh, get it ready for the inmates to move back in. But it's this is just really gross and creepy and it's horrifying to think that folks who have not even necessarily been convicted of a crime but are being held in detention prior to uh, their court proceedings, uh, they are getting to deal with this unsanitary uh, condition that really just should not be allowed to happen. Yeah, and it's, I, I think a lot of this is also just a function of the fact that jails are inherently unsafe and unhealthy environments. You've Absolutely. got a lot of people like in very close quarters. We know by LAPD's own arrest statistics that they're arresting more unhoused folks uh, per capita than pretty much anyone else. Uh, and a lot of those folks that are living on the street are going to pick up louses and bed bugs and other forms of like insect life yes. just because of the conditions of our city out there. So th- this yeah. is one where like it really uh, – there's no good way around this one because we're just not providing the health services we need uh, before people are getting picked up by the police and then thrown into jail. And it's, it's uh, you know, good that they found it and evacuated the jail and are taking, you know, time to clean it. Now, you know, keep it closed and figure out a more humane way to deal with people and take care of them before they go to trial. Because, again, about 50 percent of our jail population hasn't been convicted of a crime. They're literally just waiting to go in front of a judge uh, and may not be able to pay the fines and fees and bail that they need to get out and wait for that process to go through. Um, so this is a larger, you know, structural discussion to have. And speaking of larger structural discussions to have, (laughs) let's talk about the fences and planters, uh, which have been making a lot of waves on Twitter. There are now a couple of Twitter accounts that are just dedicated to charting these things across the city as they've grown from Skid Row to Koreatown to Venice. Uh, Michael Kohlhaas has been doing some excellent muckraking out there. Uh, Let's kind of talk about what he's found and also uh, what you were at City Hall to talk about today. Uh, that was yesterday, but yes. Uh, so LA City Council's Public Works Committee uh, decided to advance a motion from Council President Herb Wesson. Uh, this council file is number 19-0311. Uh, it was filed in regard to, quote, investigating and removing illegal fencing citywide that restricts free passage in the public right-of-way, uh, end quote. And it comes following vocal outcries from groups like Koreatown, uh, sorry, outcries from Koreatown organizing groups like K-Town for All, uh, DSA Streetwatch, and other members of the Services Not Sweeps Coalition to address the creeping presence of unpermitted fencing and planter installations on the, on the sidewalks all around Los Angeles. Um, I was actually able to give comment in the committee hearing following a number of really genuinely fantastic points. 
uh, that were brought up by the folks from LA can who were there, uh, to really demand action on this. Um, and the folks from LA can repeatedly referenced LA city code 56.12, uh, which states that quote, uh, it shall be unlawful for any person or entity occupying or having charge or control of any premises to place or cause to be placed or allow to remain upon the sidewalk or upon the street in front of any such premises, anything which shall obstruct any portion of the street or sidewalk without a valid permit, therefore. And so to, to keep this in perspective, whole, for uh, yep. folks that are living on the street, they're allowed to keep 60 gallons worth of personal property. So basically one Correct. large contractor size trash bag. These planters uh, that we're seeing like out in Venice and also in Koreatown now are much bigger much than bigger. that, like 180 <laughs> gallons. So as a small business owner who wants to stop people from camping on the sidewalk, you have a right at this point, like a de facto right to have three times as much storage as somebody who doesn't have a house. And that's, it just strikes me as a, a fairly level, a fairly blatant level of inequality. Oh, yeah. No, and a bunch of these places have like 15, 20, or even 30 planners in front of them. Uh, so it's a huge amount of uh, stuff, bulky items that have been placed on the sidewalk and have been just left alone by LAPD because they choose to enforce 5611 instead of 5612. Well, and even um, in that case, so, LAPD has, has been there while these have been installed and has even watched them be installed. You know, LAPD, and we know from the Skid Row emails that they were complicit in helping get contractors and providing security while illegal fencing was installed. And I, I believe for... To go back for a second, the, the hearing you were at was specifically about the fences and not necessarily about the planters, uh, but this has all gotten wrapped into one issue. Yeah, so while we were there, um, what happened was that uh, Adam Smith, who came from White People for Black Lives, provided the committee members with a packet of information about the situation uh, for them to review during the hearing, and it included scores of pictures of some of the most egregious examples of fencing and planners that have been set up in contravention of 5612, as well as some damning email conversations between uh, Taylor Basley, who is LA City Councilman Mike Bonin's Venice Field Deputy, uh, as well as Brian Buchner from the Mayor's Unified Homeless Response Center, uh, which shows that they had coordinated in, in at least one encampment sweep in order to allow for the illegal installation of these planters. Um, as was mentioned during the healing hearing, in the best case scenario, Taylor was confused about what his job really entailed, uh, though the LA Can folks were often using the phrase criminal cons <laughs> conspiracy. Uh, and this isn't and the first time we've seen, uh, you know, not to no. single out like one council office, but we've seen from other Correct. from other CPRA emails that like Mitch O'Farrell's office uh, uh, coordinated sweeps so that VIPs attending and a permanent affordable yes. housing opening didn't have to walk by an encampment. So this unfortunately is something that is seen as I think business as usual for a lot of folks in the city that your job is to remove people who don't have permanent shelter, that they're not mm -hmm. there as something to be as people to be served, but they're there as kind of a hurdle or something to be cleared out temporarily uh, and or at Absolutely. least moved on. Yeah, and we've seen this in CD1 as well as in CD10 uh, when it comes to dealing with things. Specifically in CD1, it was in regard to uh, the LA Marathon. Um, actually, no, was that CD13 where they were clearing everybody out of that park up? That uh, must have been CD13 because it was over by Echo Park. Um, uh, yeah, it was, I, anyway. I believe it was 13. It was one of them. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's happening all over the place. So we're not trying to say, you know, single out any single council member. This is a problem just inherent in the system of how we have been policing 
uh, and criminalizing homelessness in this city uh, for the last number of years. Uh, so just a quick quote from an email from one of the Venice stakeholders that uh, did get sent uh, to uh, Taylor Basley, just so that you have an idea of what it is that these folks at City Hall are, are dealing with in terms of the community crying out. And it really is just, it's interesting to see who the real victims are here. Um, this, this, is, this is what the email says, quote, the situation here is deplorable. It's so frustrating to be left out in the cold like this. Our SLO officer Ramirez was in the process of coordinating a day with sanitation so we could install the planters. We have the planters, we have the plants, we have the people to come and do the labor. All we need is our officials to come and help us clear the area so we can do the work. It has been five months of us residents fighting this battle is just not fair. We are exhausted, we are frustrated, we feel helpless. I apologize for some of the grammatical issues there. Uh, I'm just reading the email. Yeah, he's um, got a, he, so, he really likes his exclamation points. But I was also going to say, like, that last oh, yeah. line where, like, we're exhausted, frustrated, and helpless. If you spend a night on the streets of L.A., yeah. you know that far better than someone who's going home to a very nice house on the west side every night. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the whole point of me reading this email is that, look, the, the most of... Most of the things that you're hearing from these stakeholders who are complaining about uh, these homeless encampments in their vicinities, like they make it sound like they're the ones who are stuck living out on the streets. And it's really, we just need to have everyone sit down, like take a step back from this, sit down and like listen to each other and have a, a, a community, have some open dialogue to understand like what is actually going on here. I had uh, some really, some really great conversations that were happening in the homelessness and poverty committee, or rather after the homelessness and poverty committee meeting uh, hearing rather on Wednesday, where there were a bunch of groups, uh, a bunch of folks who had come up from uh, come down rather from Rosita who were uh, basically protesting the, the committee's um, motion to move forward with a study to figure out whether or not a, uh, a parking lot was going to be a viable place to put in some uh, permanent supportive housing or some affordable housing. It's a city-owned parking lot. And all of these local stakeholders who are business owners and local residents who are terrified of losing this parking lot for, for lots of very valid reasons, but they came in and were, were just completely convinced that the committee was out to get them and had it in for targeting them and were, they were being targeted unfairly and that they had never been communicated with. But the, the reality of the situation is that this was like the first hearing about this and it's starting that dialogue. And everybody, like there's, there's a process behind uh, all of this stuff and it's, we need to be uh, open to talking to the folks on both sides of these issues and really hearing where they're coming from and being able to, to make that kind of a... a, a concession across the board to be like, look, these are people and we need to, to deal with what their concerns are and, and validate them. Because in the instance of these people up in Rosita, like they they do have a very valid point of being concerned that putting, uh, shutting down the parking lot where they do their community, uh, like get togethers and they have festivals and whatnot. And that's like where the community gathers for this, uh, Vietnamese community up in Rosita. It's a totally valid concern. And the thing is that they, this this study, this um, viability study, is really just about determining whether or not that would be even a viable place to build this housing. And it's not like that they're going to start construction. So 
but people come in and they, uh, they freak out. And this is, this is exactly what happens because we have a, a lack of communication from our public officials with folks who are on the ground. Uh, and we just need to improve all of those chains of communication across the board. Uh, but we also need to make sure that our cops are not doing things that uh, are in contravention of the codes that they're supposed to be enforcing. Well, and it's also something like I like to talk about in terms of bringing more material analysis because we really have a problem. And this is oh, yeah, just LA. Sure. This is this is all of our society where we personalize failures of the system. Like we, we personalize structural problems that we have where the homeowners and the people you're talking about, the people who are living on the streets, they all have a personal mm-hmm. stake in this, but none of them are personally responsible for this problem. It took decades of malfeasance and mismanagement for us to end up where we're at. And we're not going to get beyond that as long as we're allowing it to be seen in terms of like personal failure, personal desire, uh, in terms of of personality or one-on-one like fixing stuff. It it really is a larger structural problem. It really is a a, a conversation that isn't just going to be settled between the people having this conversation now, but one that's going to take years, if not decades to get beyond it. And you know, my initial instinct is always to be like, we need to provide emergency services and help and do what we can there. But that still doesn't fill in a lot of the gaps and where a lot of the pressures in California are coming from. When your housing market is ruled by investors and by foreign capital and by people who don't have a stake in your neighborhood, you're not going to conquer those structural problems, no matter how friendly you get with the people who live there, housed, unhoused, passing through, whatever. There's a larger way we have to frame and look at these issues. And we're beginning to get there. And I think, you know, I I keep harping on 2020 because I know that that's going to be a major sea change in a lot of ways. Uh, But at the same time, it's just one election. And that one election just gives us four more years to work. So as we're moving forward and as we're like, going through our city and living our lives in it, try and remember you are a person with agency, but your possibilities and your opportunity is decided by structural forces that are a whole lot bigger than you or any one council member Mm -hmm. or any one elected official, that this is a societal issue. And that we really like, we're getting to a tipping point where it's going to get much worse. And this is the time to be as innovative and bold as we possibly can. So I'm going to hashtag Green New Deal this. And I know we're in a little bit of a crunch time today. Yeah, I know we're in a little bit of a crunch time today, so I wanted to – this obviously isn't LA-based, but I'm still going to rep it because I'm really having fun with the uh, <laughs> Phoenix Sunrise Hub. So uh, Sunrise Phoenix is uh, doing some very cool stuff. We've actually got a climate town hall coming up tomorrow out in Tempe at the Tempe History Museum. So if you get the chance from 2 to 5, I'm going to be out there. A bunch of electeds are going to be out there. A bunch of really cool community activists are going to be out there talking about what we can do here in Arizona – to kind of reformat our energy infrastructure, what we can do to build towards sustainability. And let me tell you, after a couple weeks on the ground here in Arizona, uh, as messed up as LA's government is, it has nothing on Arizona. Uh Like I forgot how toxic (laughs) the politics out here were, but how many opportunities there are to build power and fix things. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to be here for a little bit and getting a different taste of local government and seeing what I can do here. Uh, and uh, I, I hope you all have the chance to at least, you know, tune in and pay attention here as we build what's going to have to be a global movement to fix all of the problems that we're now subject to. Yeah. I mean, and, and just to, as a quick little uh, bow to tie off on that, that brief discussion about the Rosita stuff, uh, there was a woman there who was 
clearly very concerned about the shutting down of this parking lot. But at the same time, she was like, look, there are parking lots just like a couple of blocks away. And we definitely need that permanent supportive housing. And she told the story about how she had been completely turned around after uh, having had discussions and having seen what was going on and having previously completely opposed bringing any kind of homeless services into the area. Uh, she just completely had her uh, worldview changed and may, and it, she realized that without providing that kind of support structure, we're only going to be furthering these systemic problems and continuing to perpetuate it and push it the any kind of a, a reckoning down the line. And people are simply going to suffer for it. So uh, hats off to her for coming forward and 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 having uh, decided to advocate for building the housing, just you know, not on that particular parking lot. Which, to be fair, that's exactly what this study is all about. So, uh, yeah, the the systemic changes are monumental, but together we can uh, have the dialogue and build the people power and make the changes that we need to see. Yeah, as uh, as Bo likes saying, uh, work on the micro to fix the macro, and I think that's a pretty good note yeah. to end on. So. Uh, I will uh, be in your ears next week along with you, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more. Thirty and more.